These psalms all tend to have a direction. They have a focus. There's a theme to each song. As any good songwriter would tell you, there may be all kinds of words and thoughts that go on through a song, but there's, there's something that inspired it, something going on in a person's life or something that's being thought of as the songwriter is writing. And that's the truth in these, that there's, there are these themes. And you can, you can draw out a theme and say, okay, that's what this psalm is about. We're talking about this morning, the Savior betrayed, and we're going to get there. This psalm is about betrayal. And it's David pouring out his heart in the midst of having been betrayed. But the truth that is here, beyond simply the theme, is what keeps grabbing me. The, the practicality, I guess, the relevance of these things. If we just let God's Word be God's Word. So let's read through the whole Psalms, just 13 verses, and come back and consider it. How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. And he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. The Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to health. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? And when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. When he goes outside, he tells it. And all who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt, saying, A wicked thing is poured out upon him, that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. You set me in your presence forever. How blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And Lord, thank you. Thank you for your servant, David, but thank you more that you inspired, Lord Jesus, you inspired David with these words. We thank you ahead of time what these words are about to teach us. And we simply ask, as we often do, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us these things in a way that they don't just settle in our souls, but they go right deep into our spirits. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm not usually a reader of blogs, but I ran across a blog post last week that just cracked me up. i got to share this. And I'm just reading it as is. I made a few changes to protect the innocent, but here it goes. The story begins about 20 years ago. I was 7 years old and my sister was 12. I was the youngest, she was the middle, and my brother was 17. We had a pretty typical older sister-younger brother relationship. I'd annoy her, she'd make fun of me. Pretty standard. One day, after annoying her, she said, If you look up the word moron in the dictionary, you'll see your picture there. (laughs) Being seven, I ran upstairs, grabbed the dictionary off the shelf, brought it downstairs, and my mother and I flipped to the M section. We got to moron, and sure enough, there was my school photo, scotch-taped into the dictionary. (laughs) 
<laughs> I cried my eyes out. When did she put my picture there? How long was she sitting on that? I have to admit now it was a pretty good burn, but kind of mean to do to a seven-year-old child. <laughs> Fast forward to last night. My sister, my brother, myself, and all our spouses were at my parents' house to celebrate my brother's birthday. After dinner, we were all sitting around telling stories of growing up when, lo and behold, the moron in the dictionary story came up. Suddenly, my father ran upstairs and came back down with the infamous dictionary. Everyone wanted to see if my picture was still taped inside. My sister opened it up, flipped to moron, and there, in all its glory, was a picture of my sister. I taped it into the dictionary sometime after the event 20 years earlier. It was one of the most glorious moments of my entire life. (laughs) Oh, man. What a great idea. (laughs) If you look up the word betrayer in a dictionary, some some might expect to see a picture of Judas Iscariot. If you look up Judas... In a dictionary, you'll find the word is there. And there are two definitions given for for the word Judas, which was once a name, but is apparently now a word. It's one who betrays under the guise of friendship. And a one-way peephole in a door. Have you ever heard that? It's called a Judas window. That little peephole on your front door is actually called a Judas window. Why? (laughs) Because you can look out while remaining unseen yourself. Which is the picture of a conniver. A picture of betrayal. So that word is, if you have one of those Judas windows on your door, it's okay, you're not a betrayer. But that's where the word comes from. That's where the name comes from. And you know, the name Judas is now forever bound to a kiss, a betrayal, a false friend, and a one-way people. Sadly, sadly, Judas is derived from the Hebrew name Judah, which means praise. So what is meant to be praise ends up being betrayal. What's meant to be a name describing worship to God ultimately ends up, well, Jesus ended up referring to him as the son of perdition or the son of waste. That's what happens when praise turns to betrayal. It becomes a waste. Judas' life could have been a praise. Think about that. Chosen as one of the twelve, he could have been a man whose name was honored. Like Peter, or John, or Yaakov. I mean, we can look at the names of the apostles, and all of them, we can count 11 of them, and speak with honor, and speak with dignity, and speak with appreciation. Even Paul, who came later. Wow, the name Paul. But Judas, you know, there was one of the apostles, another apostle named Judas, whose name was forever Judas, not Iscariot. How'd you like to have that title the rest of your life? (laughs) But the point is, you come to Judas and what should have been praise is betrayal. Singular example now in all human history of two-faced treachery and intimacy. That's Judas. Let me ask a question. Anyone here not feel or has anyone not felt the sting of betrayal? Wow. So you're telling me that every one of us here have been betrayed at some point in our lives. Doesn't feel good, does it? How many of y'all have betrayed someone? Don't 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 raise your hand. You know, you gotta go. 
And by the way, my name's Judas, so I don't know. <laughs> you almost expect betrayal from a superficial world, don't you? I mean, in jobs, and business, and life, you kind of expect, oh, well, there we go, that's what happens in this world. But you know what? When someone goes after you without a real relationship, it's not betrayal, it's an attack. It's simply an attack. Betrayal happens when you have entrusted yourself to someone. Betrayal occurs when, when you have some level of intimacy, of relationship with another person, and that is itself broken. Listen to this. This is Psalm 55, verse 12, which says, It is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. That's when it hurts. That's betrayal. That's when it is painful. I can deal with all kinds of slings and stones and arrows, man. Fire away, shoot at me. But when they fly from a familiar friend, one who I have known in sweet fellowship and and trust and counsel, nothing cuts deeper. Nothing causes more pain. What's marvelous is the Lord recognizes that. And the Lord writes about it in His Word. And we find that Psalm 41 is in many ways a soothing balm for the betrayed. A marvelous, wonderful psalm. Psalm 41, like Psalm 40, we read last week, before it, it comes in three stanzas. So we'll break it down that way. There's a a prologue, verses 1 through 3. There's a monologue, verses 4 through 10. And then there's an epilogue, 11, 12, and 13. You could call Psalm 41 the kick-me-when-I'm-down lament <laughs> because he's already having a hard time. You, you get this in the language and the words. David's already either very sick or, or having some big issue. And while he's feeling this pain, people are piling on him. Friends that he trusted come after him. But the whole ordeal marvelously resolves into a beautiful blessing. So, so here's the idea of Psalm 41 in a nutshell. It's you go from betrayal to blessing. With that in mind, I ask that question, how do you do that? How do you move from betrayal to blessing? I mean, I think we all would like to know that. Having been betrayed and knowing that in the future you probably will be betrayed again at some point by someone that you love or trust. You know what's going to happen because there's sin in the world and and we have a sin nature. And sometimes even the betrayal of a friend is not intended as a betrayal, but oh, it feels like that. How do you move from betrayal to blessing? How do you cross that bridge as it were? Well, Psalm 41 navigates that road for us. So wherever you're at in life, either you've just recently been betrayed or you have felt it in the past, or perhaps it will come in the future. Note this, Psalm 41 is your roadmap. To get from betrayal to blessing. Number one, part one, let's look at this, a prologue of preparation. So the prologue I call a prologue of preparation. And he begins, how blessed is he who considers the helpless. So the psalm begins as a beatitude. Blessed. Like the beatitudes of Jesus in Matthew 5, Luke chapter 6, each one beginning blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the gentle. 
And here, David begins Psalm 41, blessed is he who considers the helpless. Hey, listen, this is preparation preceding betrayal that results in final blessing. So he's going to talk about something right here that is good for the heart and prepares one to go through betrayal and come out the other side blessed. And by the way, that's key. The right heart anticipates blessing in any situation. The right heart assumes that though I'm hurting, there's something that God can do with this, will do in this. That somehow on the other side of it, this is not the end. This is just a moving through to a better situation. God is going to bless. So before the treachery transpires, and it will, here's how you begin to prepare to ultimately be blessed. You consider the helpless. Consider the helpless. Let that wash over your your thinking. Consider the helpless because the world loves power. The world respects the strong, bows to the big mouth, kowtows to the pig-headed. I like that. It's kind of a farming phrase. Kowtows to the pig-headed. If you're a chicken. (laughs) Sorry, I don't have a dog in that race. Let's move on. Consider the helpless. That's what God says. Where our world says, admire the strong, God says, no, consider the helpless. What does that mean? Consider the helpless. Okay, that guy's helpless. What, what? I just considered him. No, it's, it's much more than that. The word consider, note this, consider is masculine. Does that sound familiar at all? Masculine. M-A-S-K-I-L, if you look through your psalms, you will discover 13 of the 150 psalms are called mascals. A mascal would be a psalm of consideration, more literally a psalm of understanding or a teaching psalm. To consider the helpless is to give careful thought to their situation. Not just a superficial nod, oh, that guy is helpless. No, to consider the helpless means you look into the life of the helpless. You think about the person who's helpless. You roll up your sleeves with compassion and empathy for the helpless. To consider the helpless. Helpless is the word in the Hebrew dal, D-A-L. And it means those who are poor or weak. It can speak of financial poverty. So it's a wealth issue or a health issue. Those who are weak physically, those who are weak emotionally, the poor or the weak, I would say also those who are weak spiritually. Listen to this, and it's vital to the health of any church. Romans 15, the Apostle Paul writes, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's Psalm 69, verse 9, and we're going to look at that Wednesday night. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. 
Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. How did Christ accept you? In your strength? In your all-togetherness? In your power and wonder and glory as you so impressed Him with your life? How did Christ accept you in your helplessness? In your weakness? God says, consider the helpless. Because that's what Jesus did. And when we do so, man, with one mind, one voice, praising one God, we begin to believe and speak the same way. Because the one who considers the helpless is looking out beyond himself, beyond herself. It's not worried about how life is treating me, how this situation is going for me. The one who considers the helpless is looking around to see where can I roll up my sleeves and show compassion and grace to someone else. Consider the helpless. That's God's heart. Consider the helpless and act on it. By the way, there's a parallel beatitude of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Oh, I better be merciful because i got to get me some mercy. It's not about you. <laughs> it's not about me. Blessed are those who are merciful. The mercy is going to come. And in the same way, how blessed is he who considers the helpless. If you're already considering the helpless, guess what? When betrayal comes, blessing is going to follow. Because the heart is right in the first place. This is where it starts. With hearts that consider the helpless. And like the Beatitudes of Jesus, this is interesting to me. How blessed in verse 1 is now followed by promises that describe the blessing that will follow. How blessed? How blessed is he who considers the helpless? You might ask. And the rest of the prologue gives us answer to that. Think about that list again and look at it. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. Deliverance. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive. Protection. And he shall be called blessed upon the earth. Blessing. I love the last part here, verse 2, because it's like David isn't talking about what God is going to do. He's praying for God to do this one. And do not give him over to the desire of his enemies. So it's not just this is what a blessing is. This is David praying for that very thing, which is defense against the enemies. And the Lord will sustain him on his sickbed and in his illness. You restore him to health. By the way, that last one, you restore him to health, is literally you will turn all his bed to health. I like that. You're on your sick bed, and the Lord's going to turn that bed to health. Now, there are two ways that you can look at this or consider this phrase, consider the helpless and the blessings that, that follow. First is you can say these are promises for the helpless. This is the way God's compassion works. This is what He does for those who are helpless. They are compassionately considered by the Lord. They are delivered. And they are protected. And they are blessed and they are safeguarded or defended. They're sustained and they're restored. Hey, we just read in Romans 15, that's how it's supposed to be in the body of Christ. In this world, the best place to be helpless ought to be the church. It should be the body of Christ. 
After all, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 24, God has so composed the body, speaking of the physical body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. (laughs) I got out of bed this morning, I'm getting ready to go. I had this new pair of Puma tennis shoes, really cool. I was going to impress you all with them this morning. And I went to put them on, and they're just too tight. That's no fun when your shoes are too tight. So they're going back to Puma, right? They were too tight, so I had to change back into my old tennis shoes. And, and, and I'm getting ready, and I'm telling you, Cheryl, it's so funny, because she just sees me on Sunday morning in a way that none of y'all do. Your <laughs> shoes are too tight. can't wear those to church this morning. <laughs> Grab my stuff, pick up my Bible. Oh, my Bible. And I walk across the room and my lower back started aching because I was carrying Silas and Ethan around all day yesterday. And I'm just... And my whole body was suffering for it. Back to the verse. So... So that there may be no division in the body. He says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. So my shoes were too tight. My back was so my entire body was just going. (laughs) Cheryl's laughing. The whole body. If one member. Can we say that at the bridge? If one member suffers, all suffer. Hey, by the way, and I don't mean to, you know, embarrass her, especially if she listens to this teaching. But would you just be praying for Maureen Esker? Please be praying for Maureen. Struck us the other day, Les and Don and I were over there and we were just spending some precious time with Erica Maureen. And the thing that, that really hooked me, caught me the most in all that we were praying and, and talking about and sharing with was, was how moved she was when Les said, we're in this with you. That brought tears to her eyes because she said, I needed to know I wasn't alone. When one member suffers, all suffer. Someone's hurting, we're all hurting. Someone's sick, we're all sick, if at least at heart, because we consider the helpless. And we consider those that that need that kind of consideration. And this is the Lord's heart for us, because He considers the helpless, that we would do the same so that the helpless would be delivered from trouble and protected in life and blessed on the earth and defended against enemies and sustained on their sickbed and restored to health, because we're considering the helpless the way God considers the helpless. And when we do that, guess what? The helpless is blessed. And I believe God is pleased. Now Paul says if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So you very much could make the case how blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in a day of trouble. Him could be the helpless. But I think the context, and you're reading this clearly, is probably... The other way, probably more legitimate, more contextual, God gives special strength and protection to those who consider the helpless. Which is really what he's saying here. We normally would think, well, God protects the helpless. Because people can say, no, no, it's God gives these things, these blessings to those who consider and act on behalf of the helpless. Why would he do that? Listen, he delivers the deliverer. God protects the protector. He blesses 
those who bless. He defends the defender. He sustains the sustainer. He restores those who restore. Why? For the sake of the helpless. That if those who consider the helpless are cared for and blessed by God, they will be able to then continue to consider the helpless. And the helpless are cared for. So it's this two-tiered thing that the helpless continue to have deliverers. They have protectors. They have defenders. So that the weak themselves can continue to be blessed by those who love and care for and act in the name of Jesus Christ. Consider the helpless. And by the way, the weak, the helpless, could be you, could be me at any time. I don't care how strong you feel, you're going to have a time in your life where you are the helpless one. Talking with Bob earlier as we were just coming in about a friend that he was just caring for. And he he was Navy, right? Was he a pilot, Bob? Yeah. So another pilot, a fellow pilot who had a geoblastoma. And it looks like he's coming through it very well. Praise God. And Bob was with him just the last three weeks, just kind of caring for him. And and a few of them were, were spending some time with this gentleman. Here's a guy who's a Navy pilot. Those of you young Navy pilots are like, yeah, I can fly a plane right onto a ship. What up? You know? Strong. You're going to be helpless someday. Every one of us in here will at some point experience that sense of helplessness. Everyone's going to experience it. But whether I'm helpless or I'm helpful with these promises under my belt, guess what? I'm no longer concerned with things like self-defense or blessing or protection. I don't worry about that stuff. God's got it. I can rest assured, you can rest assured, one way or another, that God has got us, and therefore, our calling is simply to live compassionate lives in Christ. Because He's got the defense. You'll be defended. He's got the protection. He's got the restoration and the sustainability. He's got all of this. He's holding that. I don't worry about that. I give that to others. And I know God's got me somewhere in the body of Christ. He's got me so I can just live for Him. Isn't that great? That's how He designed it. That's why when people say, what what good is the church? What's the church for? Well, Jesus is the builder of the church. I didn't come up with this idea. If I did, you could blame me. But Jesus came up with it, so you got to blame Him. you got to lay the church at His feet and go, Why the church? And He would respond, so that you would consider the helpless. So that there's somewhere in this world where the weakest and the most helpless and the impoverished and those who are struggling are cared for for no other reason but that I said so. Consider the helpless. By the way, this goes for the helpless too. What does? That is, the helpless, I believe, are being called to live compassionate lives themselves. Huh? The helpless are called to compassion. Do you realize that some of our best praying for other people comes when we ourselves are hurting? Have you noticed that in your own life? You start to pray for for yourself because you're in some kind of pain or some kind of distress or some kind of worry. And it's amazing how when you're crying out to the Lord, how oftentimes He brings to mind other people who are struggling or hurting or depressed. And you find yourself praying for them too. 
that out of our own pain, sometimes the deepest compassion is developed, not just for later, but right in the midst of weakness, I find myself compassionate for someone else. So even the helpless are called to be compassionate people. Well, I could go on and on about this, but remember, this is just the prologue of preparation. Considering the helpless is just getting us ready, because now we step onto the road from betrayal to blessing. So we come to the monologue, part two, which is what I would call a monologue of manipulation. And as the monologue begins, we get to one more piece of information here, and that is uh, information about the helpless monologuist. Look it up, that's a word. Verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. So David's writing, and apparently he is sin-sick. He's sin-sick. He's in need of healing, but he also recognizes his own sin. So this is either dealing with, perhaps for David, another sin-related illness. He may be sick because of sin. Some commentators again think, like previous psalms that we looked at, that perhaps David is struggling with an STD again. Something that he recognizes, I am sick because of the sin I committed. But he cries out, he says, I I know the position I'm in before you, Father. I know I'm a helpless one. I know that I'm sick. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. And by the way, David always says that. He says that in Psalm 51 too, or 51 as well. He says, I have sinned against you. Against you alone have I sinned. David always recognizes that when he betrays another person, when he sins against another person, what he's really done is betrayed or sinned against God. That ultimately all of our sin is sin against Him. You may get hurt by my sin, but my sin is against Him. Well, David recognizes that, knows the position that he's in. He's either ill because of uh, of a sin, or he's deeply depressed over his own spiritual helplessness and sinfulness that has kind of wrought all these things, or perhaps it's both. Perhaps he's just lying there in a sickbed, and he's, he's helpless, and he's weak, and he knows he's a sinner, and he knows he's sick, and he's crying out to the Lord. And one of the things that makes betrayal so painful is it sometimes cons- confirms what I already fear about myself. Do you understand what I'm saying? Someone goes after you as being a mean-spirited person, and it stings because you wonder if perhaps you've been mean-spirited. Or someone calls you out for not being trustworthy and it hurts because you realize maybe you haven't been so trustworthy. That betrayal can dredge up stuff that we don't want to think about ourselves. I don't want to know this about myself. I can't possibly be the problem here. And I'd hear my mom back when I was a kid saying, it takes two to tango. Thanks, mom. (laughs) He hurt me. It takes two. No, it was all him. But you start to realize some of it may be you. Well, we might think of David as the good guy, but there were those who were just waiting for his fall. There were those who hated him. Hey, he's in leadership. People in leadership always get hated by someone. Can't please everyone. And there were those who hated David. They were looking for his fatal fall. They wanted to see his personal demise in his day. Verse 5, he says, My enemies speak evil against me. When will he die and his name perish? That's always good to know there are people out there who think that way about you. (laughs) 
In verse 6, and when he comes to see me, he speaks falsehood. His heart gathers wickedness to itself. And when he goes outside, he tells it. Oh, he comes into me like a friend. Comes into me all sweet and nice with his words. Oh, well, we hope you get better. And he walks outside and says, you know why that jerk's sick in the first place? Starts talking about and gossiping and slandering me. David knows, knows what's going on. He says, I'm, I'm aware of this. All who hate me whisper together against me and against me. They devise my hurt, which sounds a little paranoid, but it's probably true. I hate to tell you this, but in many cases, if you're concerned that people are talking behind your back, they probably are. I'm just here to encourage. And verse 8. A wicked thing is poured out upon him that when he lies down, he will not rise up again. See, his enemies are saying he's sick because of what he's done. And maybe this time he'll just up and die. This wickedness on David is because he's wicked. He deserves... Have you ever, wow, caught yourself saying he deserves this? You ever feel that... That horrible, wicked little thrill when someone you don't like is having a tough time. <laughs> I mean, I mean, we'll pray for him. And David's describing this. Hey, if you ever, if you ever have that feeling at all, that someone who has harmed you is now being harmed, and you go, they deserve it. Listen. 1 Corinthians 13.4 Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. Listen, my favorite line in here, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Let me retranslate that for you. Doesn't keep track of wrongs done against you. That's so important. See, I, I want all of my wrongs to be forgotten. I want to be forgiven and I want to be able to move on from it. And I don't want that stuff to be kept in a file somewhere. That someone can dredge it up any time and go, but do you remember when you... But yeah, you did... Oh, we have this written down about... I hate that. Because every single one of us, we want to go forward in Christ. We want to move ahead in grace. And we don't want all the stuff that we've been trying so hard to forget anyway to keep being dredged up and thrown in our face. Man, I can confess to you stuff I did 10 years ago. I just don't want to hear it again. I've already confessed it. As far as God goes, no, as far as He's concerned, by His grace, done. You bring up that old stuff to God, you know what He says? What are you talking about? You know, you know if you are in Christ Jesus, do you know what His file on you looks like? It's empty. Open it up, there's a picture of Jesus there. That's grace. That's love. That's the attitude that we're called to have one for another in our fellowship and in our lives. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. But treachery is to be expected of enemies. So don't be surprised if someone who's set against you is treacherous or betraying. It's what they do. David had his share of rivals and detractors and those who even wanted his own death. Even within his own family. David's family is a picture of dysfunction, by the way. Complete train wreck of a family. Even though he was a man after God's own heart. 
But most painful to David was when the betrayal came by way of a most trusted friend. Verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And we're pretty sure we know who this is in David's life. It was a man by the name of Ahithophel. Not a name we share a lot, and if you look it up in the dictionary, you won't find it. Ahithophel, Ahithophel, close friend, trusted advisor. 2 Samuel 16, verse 23 says, The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel, regarded by both David and Absalom, which is the first sign of trouble. Absalom was David's son. We mentioned, I believe, last week, his son who betrayed him. His son who stood out there and tried to usurp the kingdom, who had, for a brief time, overthrown David and driven David and his advisors right out of Jerusalem. Absalom, who also considered this Ahithophel a valuable counselor. Well, Ahithophel was first David's counselor. Among David's wise men... This would be like one of our shepherds with me. People I, I trust implicitly would be in Ahithophel. He would have been, was on David's counsel, but he turned against David in the most horrible of ways in that he supported and stood with the rebellion of Absalom. He chose the young man rather than the older king. He counseled Absalom to lay with his father David's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Kid you not. Read it. It's in the Bible. This is one of those things Rachel was telling me the other day. She was reading the book of Judges when she was a little girl. Judges. And she came across some of the things in Judges and reading it thought to herself, I wonder if mom and dad knows what's in this book. (laughs) If they knew, they wouldn't let me read this. It's just real life, gang. And Ahithophel says to Absalom, look, if you start laying in the sight of Israel so they all know what's going on, you usurp his authority. That was the mentality of the nations in those days. Sleep with a king's wife and you have power over the king. So Ahithophel says, Absalom Absalom does this in the sight of all Israel. And ultimately, as, as David is driven out for a time, for a short season, fleeing Jerusalem for his life with his family and those who, who are loyal to him, and Absalom begins to set up his temporary rule, which then is destroyed. Betrayal always does that. Ends up destroyed. But anyway, Ahithophel aligns with Absalom. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, he asks Absalom that he might take 12,000 men to hunt David down and kill him. Why? How could you have such vitriolic anger and hatred toward David? who You were his counselor, you were his, his friend. As David said, my close friend in whom I trusted. What could possibly make this man so trusted turn so viciously on David? And here's the intrigue of the story. David had wronged Ahithophel years before. If you trace the lineage of Ahithophel in 2 Samuel, you'll find out that he had a son. His son's name was Eliam. And Eliam had a daughter. 
Ahithophel's granddaughter, whose name was Bathsheba. David was the cause of the death of Ahithophel's son-in-law and messing up the life of his or grandson of his granddaughter, Bathsheba, who now is in the palace with David, and this just burned Ahithophel. Clearly something he never forgot. My friends, the roots of betrayal are irrigated with bitterness. Betrayal never just happens on the fly. It's always been seething. It's always been, as I said, watered with seed, or seeded and watered with anger and bitterness. Hebrews 12.15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. But betrayal wasn't the end of Ahithophel's story. No, he betrayed, he sought the death, the murder of David. His bitterness boiled over and ultimately, 2 Samuel 17.23, when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and arose and went to his home, to his city, and set his house in order and strangled himself. Thus he died and was buried in the grave of his father. Betrayal is always a tragic tale. Betrayal always ends in sorrow, not necessarily for the betrayed as much as for the betrayer. But there's another trusted friend turned betrayer who ended up hung by his own bitterness as well. And you know his name. Turn over to John chapter 13. John 13. Jesus had just finished washing the disciples' feet. And one of the most amazing things about the washing of the disciples' feet, to me at least, is that it included 24 feet. That is, all 12 apostles, all 12 disciples were there, including Jesus and, or including Judas. And Jesus knew as he washed Judas' feet, he knew exactly what was coming. John makes clear that. Jesus knew everything that was going on. On that intriguing night of the Passover. He knew what was about to happen. He knew what Judas was about to do. And yet he washed Judas' feet. And I wonder if he lingered there. I wonder if as he went disciple to disciple, when he came to Judas, he washed more carefully, more lovingly, even more tenderly than any of the other guys. Jesus. Jesus. Don't you know that's not how we do things in the world? You don't wash the feet of your enemies. You don't put yourself in a vulnerable position like that. Man, you're just going to get burned. Jesus knew that. At the risk of being burned, in fact, in His case, crucified, Jesus made Himself most vulnerable of all people. It flies in the face of human wisdom to look at what Jesus did. The entire crucifixion is a story of vulnerability and it makes no sense. It's a story of helplessness when He was the most powerful man ever to walk the face of the earth. It speaks of this weakness when He should have been strong. Impoverished when He should have been rich. It's just utter foolishness when you think about it in human terms, but we could learn a thing or two from Jesus about relationships. 
first of all, yes, if you trust others, you risk being burned. You will get burned. You may even get pierced through the heart, if not the hands. However, Philippians 1.29 tells us, For you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. One of the things that's tragic in church circles is when someone gets burned at church and stops going. Not only because of the hurt that's gone on there, but I, I, I don't need to do, I don't need to have anything to do with church anymore because in that place I'm gonna get hurt. Yeah, you will. I'll, I'll tell you right now, join a church fellowship, you're gonna get hurt. I promise you. Another word of encouragement from Pastor Rick this morning. <laughs> There's no way around it. You can't gather in a group of people without at some point being stung or hurt or disappointed or discouraged by something someone says or does. It's going to happen. It will happen here. I know, not at the bridge. But yes, even at the bridge, you're going to get hurt. But do you know what? Praise the Lord, for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. So if we can make you suffer, it's to the praise of Jesus. (laughs) If you're hurt, (laughs) you walk in the Lord. And you know what's amazing, what's beautiful, is when I see people hurt in this fellowship as I have, and turn right around and they keep loving other people. And I'm like, there's Jesus. I see Him. There He goes. When we turn hurt into compassion and praise. But in your woundedness, understand that you might just see the one who wounds you themselves saved. You might just see the one who harms you themselves restored. And that's that's the beauty of doing it the Christ way. You also might might just be a witness to someone else who sees the betrayal, sees the hurt, sees how you walk it out, and they end up blessed by it. Well, John 13, I told you to turn there, verse 10 tells us in the story, Jesus said to Peter, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet because Peter just wanted to jump in the tub. But it's completely clean. And you are all clean, but, but not all of you. And I know it pained Jesus to say that. You're clean, but not all. For he knew the one who was betraying him. And for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Now, when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you're right, for I am. By the way, if your Bibles have the word so there, so isn't there. He just says, you're right, for... I am. Ego eimi in the Greek. It's, it's, another, it's one of those more subtle, but it's another I am statement in the Gospel of John. You're right. I am. And he says in verse 14, If I then, the Lord and the Teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Okay, everybody, shoes off. No, no look, he, he says, I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you, which is not to turn around and legalistically have foot washings. Hey, we could do that, and, and, and churches have and do, and I've been involved in foot washing, and it can be a really <laughs> embarrassing but intimate and, and wonderful experience. That's not the point. The point is, note how I served. Look at how far down I was willing to bend from the glorious halls of heaven to my knees washing your dirty feet. That's how far I'll go. 
Do that. Do that one for another. Truly, truly, verse 16, he says, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, what does he say? You are blessed if you do them. Consider the helpless. How blessed is he who considers the helpless? Which is exactly what Jesus says. And then he says, I do not speak to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41, verse 9. So Jesus now quotes David's psalm of betrayal. And we realize now suddenly with with a deep breath, it was not just personal to David. Psalm 41 is prophetic of Jesus. Oh, not in terms of, I know my sin before you, Jesus was sinless. But as you drop down into the monologue of the betrayed, Jesus is speaking. Psalm 41.9, even my close friend, he who eats my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. It's a Jesus statement. And Judas's betrayal of Jesus was foretold in the old psalm a thousand years before it took place. Verse 19, Jesus said, from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe, again, that I am. Not I am He, I am. So Jesus is, He's doing a prologue of preparation, as then He gives a miniature monologue of the manipulated before He heads into the final blessing. He says, look, I'm telling you now, so that as you see this betrayal take place, You'll know who I am. You'll see my nature. You'll understand God better. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 20, he who receives whomever I send receives, note this, receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. And verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. I can't imagine the moment. This whole context, and and please understand this, when you read John 13, there are all kinds of rabbit trails we could take and things we can learn from the words of Jesus, but He is speaking in the context of one about to be betrayed. And He's describing how the one about to be betrayed will move through that betrayal and still be able to love and forgive the entire planet after the fact. He's revealing the character and nature of God in Himself. And to say, one of you will betray me. Well, the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. Why? Because they all were capable of betraying him. Just like you are. Not me, but you. (laughs) Are all... (laughs) We are all capable of the betrayal of Jesus Christ himself. If we were in the room, we would ask that question. Am I going to do it? Why would you ask that question? Because at some time in your tiny little pea brain, you thought about walking away. And I think after three years with Jesus, there were times where every single one of the twelve went, I don't know if I can stick with this. When he says, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. I wonder if a couple of the apostles were kind of, you know, edging to the corner of the crowd. point is they all felt that they could have deserted him and they all did 
shortly after this, every single one of them fled. Every one of them ran away. John was the only one who at least kind of made his way back and was in the courtyard and then followed at a distance and watched what took place at the cross. John was there, his most beloved friend, but John didn't even stand up and go, this is not right, he's an innocent man. They all deserted him. And again, we are all capable of that kind of desertion. Let's not think too highly of ourselves. There was one reclining on Jesus' bosom at the table whom Jesus loved, and that's, that's John, because the, the disciples, verse 22, began looking at one another at a loss to know of, of which one he was speaking. So John's reclining there. Simon Peter, who's off a little ways on the table, verse 24, gestured to him, said, Tell us, who is it, who is it of whom he is speaking? And he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus said, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan entered him. He was not demon-possessed, he was Satan-possessed. And Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now one of those, or no one of those reclining at the table, knew for what purpose he had said this to him. I'm like, clueless! How can you guys not know? The one who's going to betray me, I'm going to take this morsel, dip it, and give it to him. Here you go, Judas. What you must do, do quickly. Oh, what are they asking? what's he asking Judas to do? I'm like, Peter, did you not read John 13? It's clear to us! <laughs> How could it be so unclear? How could they be so clueless? I've shared this before because the gesture of offering the morsel was was one made to a dearest friend. At Passover, this is what you did to the one you loved the most of the entire crowd. And Jesus offers this to Judas. I believe it was a last-ditch effort to Judas. Jesus saying, this is how I feel about you. You matter to me. I love you. You are precious to me. You are my dear friend. And Judas took it. And like the Judas window, looking out but not trying to reveal himself, he he eats of that morsel. I don't know if he had a wicked little half smile on his face. And then Satan comes in. And Jesus says, do it quick. Was Judas saved? Pope Francis thinks so. Pope Francis has actually recently said as much that he believes, you know, Judas was was a player, was a pawn, and deserves compassion and grace and forgiveness and, and will likely be saved. And I couldn't disagree more, not because I wouldn't want him to be saved. I would hope that he could be saved. But he won't be. Why? Well, Jesus was very clear about this. He said, I praise you, Father, that I have not lost any of those whom you gave me except the son of perdition. I lost the son of waste. Judas's life could have been a Judah. And Jesus says, this one's lost. Charles Spurgeon says... The kiss of the traitor wounded our Lord's heart more than the nails in his hands. And I would agree. Judas was not saved. His bitterness consumed him. He went out 
And like Ahithophel, he hung himself. But the Jesus way, what we could ironically call the way of Christ, it betrays human wisdom. Opposite from Judas, 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Back in Psalm 41, the monologue decrying the manipulative betrayal concludes in verse 10, But you, O Lord, but you, O Lord, And remember this, whenever you're betrayed in the face of all enemies, in the face of those who would attack and those who would harm and those who would betray, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Was not Jesus raised up? So again, this is implying Jesus, but I don't like the phrase that I may repay them. What are we talking? Sweet revenge? Scotch taping someone's picture to the moron section of the dictionary? Is that, is that what we're looking at here? Is he really saying, raise me up for vengeance? I don't know the heart of David. I do know the heart of Jesus. I know the heart of God. I know Romans twelve nineteen says, never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And people hear that and they go, oh, so he's a vengeful God. No, no, he's the one who knows how to give vengeance when it's the only thing left to give. When there's nothing else, when there's no other hope. We don't know when that point comes. Do you realize that in a relationship? We never know when we're beyond hope with someone. I have seen people beyond hope come to faith in Jesus and it's amazing. They're the ones that we're going to see in heaven and we go, wow, grace really is big. And they'll be looking at me going, yes, it is. We don't know, but God knows. And God in his perfect knowledge says, don't, don't take revenge. Vengeance is mine. I I got it. I got that. You don't do that. You don't worry about, I'll take care of that. Why, Lord? Because I'll do it right. And you won't. So don't take vengeance. Jesus Christ. Now think about this with me. Jesus was raised up from death by betrayal. And yes, a day is coming when Jesus will exact perfect justice. However... In his word, again, inspiring Paul, Romans 12, verse 20 says, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And if you want to understand the burning coal statement, go listen to Romans 12 in our our online teaching. I'm not going to take the time with it. But the point is, you consider the helpless. And the helpless might just be your enemy. The helpless might just be the one who has betrayed you. You don't know but that they're betraying out of their own weakness. And remember this, that in between his rising, as we read again, raise me up that I may repay them, in between his rising and his vengeance, 2,000 years of pure grace. 2,000 years plus of waiting for people to turn to Him and just say, I'm sorry. 
to turn around and just seek forgiveness. What we could call a 2,000 year Selah of grace as the Lord has paused. So may God raise us up even from, from betrayal to such a grace as His. Amen? An epilogue of exaltation. Verse 11. By this I know that you are pleased with me because my enemy does not shout in triumph over me. And it's true. Didn't hear any shouting from the enemy's camp on the day of the resurrection. That was a quiet morning among Satan and his minions. As Jesus walked out of the grave alive, no one was shouting that day among the enemies of Jesus. And we know, and I just want to read this to you, Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He disarmed the rulers and authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him. They weren't shouting in triumph. Jesus was. Now, some might say, yeah, but the enemies of Christ on the cross are awfully noisy in our day. You know, I read that verse and that was one of the first things I thought. My enemy does not shout in triumph over me. And I hear a lot of shouting against Christianity today. I hear a lot of shouting in triumph over the church and and non-believers and and even marginal believers shouting in triumph over the Bible when it was taken out of the schools and prayer was erased from the schools and Ten Commandment monuments are being taken down and people shouting in triumph. And I hear those shouts and I think they're awfully noisy in my day. Day ain't over yet. The day has not ended. Verse 12. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity. You set me in your presence forever. So the Christ-like response, even to the most blatant of betrayals, is I'm known to God. God knows my heart. God knows the right and the wrong of this, and the wrong of this that is mine I own and I repent of, and I say, as David did up in verse 4, I have sinned against you. Forgive me, Lord. But the Lord knows your heart, and He knows your integrity, and you stand before Him. You are upheld by Him because you are in His presence. So that whatever is done to you or against you, I'm in the presence of the Lord, and though the world think me foolish or weak or helpless, hey... I stand in Him, verse 13, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And this is the epilogue of exaltation. How He comes to the end of all this betrayal and pouring out His heart and just says, blessed is the name of the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. Final point. Christ in you is all about... Proving the character of God. Living as a Christian in this world is not about proving yourself to this world as a no longer sinner. Because we all know we still do. Walking as a believer, walking as a follower is about proving the character of God. Even when I'm attacked, especially when I'm betrayed, it's about revealing His nature. His nature, that is who He is, not who I am. 
Who I am doesn't matter in all this. I'm loved. I'm beloved. I'm, I'm, I'm a child of God. That's who I am. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Beloved by God. That's who I am. That's not what's at issue here. His nature, His character is what matters. Which is why verses 1 through 3 talk about delivering, protecting, blessing, defending, sustaining, restoring. That's all God. That's all God's nature and character. That's why the blessing comes from Him because that is who He is. And as these things are seen in me, He gets the glory. He gets honored. It all keeps coming back to who He is. His character. That's what we are proving, what we are showing. And when we recognize that my life is for the sake of His character, then I become a blessing to Him. And that's the great turnaround. It's not just betrayal to blessing so that I'm blessed. It's moving through betrayal to blessing the name of God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And that's the whole point. So the question is Judah or Judas? Which are you going to be? Are you going to be a praise to God or are you going to be a waste? Father, we bow before You. And we recognize, Lord, with all honesty, that every one of us are capable of being a waste. Lord, I speak from my own heart. I have wasted time. I have wasted relationships. I have wasted some of the gifts that You've given me. On my own foolishness and selfishness, I've been a waste in betrayal. I've wasted opportunities when I was betrayed, Lord, to show forth Your character and Your love and Your nature and Your compassion. But I so thank You that by Your grace, I'm not a waste. Praise Your name, Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And would You, Father, teach us by Your Spirit how to be a people who bless Your name because we're so focused on You and not ourselves. Even in considering the helpless, Father, we do so because that's what You do. Because we want to do what our Father's doing. And so we do that and we look over our shoulder, we look up at You and say, is this, is this what You're doing, Dad? We want to be like You. But not so that we can be glorious, but that You will be glorified. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is very much a teaching for followers of Jesus, for those who believe in God and how to walk out life in in all of its difficulties with an attitude that praises and honors Him and blesses His name. But if you're not a believer in Jesus, I invite you to give your life to Him. Because in walking with Jesus, suddenly even betrayal has purpose. Even hardship and difficulty brings blessing. And you start to see the world in a completely different way, not because of your own mindset, but because of His Spirit in you, and He promises to walk with you. So if you would become a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, I invite you to do that. Give your life to Him. How do I do that? Come and pray. We'll tell you. It's not a rote little thing that you read or say. It's just trusting Him. If you are a follower of Jesus, and you're in the midst of betrayal, maybe you're really hurt, And even all the things that we've talked about, you think, okay, I I understand what it says on the page, but my heart is so hurt by what this person did, I don't know how to move through this. Why don't we pray about that too? 
I can't give you any more words of wisdom on this other than what's in the Scriptures. But we can ask God by His Spirit to soothe a broken heart and to bring you through hard times. Whatever you need, come to Jesus. Let's stand up and you can go to any one of the four corners and there will be someone to pray with you. Let's stand and worship. Oh.